Well, good morning. Good to see each of you here today. It's just a great Lord's Day. You know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful that it's been cool around here. You know what? This place is, uh, I haven't seen air conditioning ducks, so I'm very thankful it's been cool. That's God's grace. It's tough being a fat man in a hot room, okay? It's good to be, good to be back with you. It's exciting to see what God is doing in your midst. Um, particularly excited about this retreat that's coming up to have 80% of the church already signed up. That's awesome. Uh, the rest of you 20% slackers get moving. Okay, get signed up. It's time to go. Now, I'm sure sometimes there's reasons, but uh, what a great time of fellowship. And it says a lot about your body life uh, that you guys want to get together and do that. And I praise God for that. Also excited because my son's home. He's been in Israel and then uh, now he's been in Nevada over the, the summer at a Christian camp ministering up there. So we're glad to have him back. Uh, right? Kind of glad? <laughs> I have to say that. Um, no, we're thrilled to have him back. It's, it's great to see him. There's a story told of an old farmer who brought his family to the big city for the, the very first time. And they'd never seen all the big buildings and how impressive everything was. And his wife wanted to shop and he had some business to do with the bank there in town. So he dropped her off at the, the mall and uh, he and his son went down to one of the biggest buildings downtown, which housed the home office of his bank. As he goes into the lobby there, they're standing around kind of waiting, getting their bearings, just admiring the scale of everything. And he notices this rather large elderly woman goes into this strange little room and then these two metal doors slide shut. And above the door, some numbers flash for a little bit. And he and his son watch there somewhat perplexed, having never seen an elevator before. And uh, they watch for a little bit longer. The numbers continue to flash. Pretty soon those sealed doors slide open again. And out comes a beautiful young lady. The farmer was amazed. And he turns to his son and he says, you wait right here, I'm going to get your mother. I'm gonna run her through that thing. The, the farmer thought he had, had witnessed some very, very serious change. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says this, and it talks about our sanctification. And it talks about the change that comes in every Christian's life as a result of the power of the gospel. Listen to the words of this. But we all, Paul writes, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The word transform there in that verse is interesting. We get our English word metamorphosis from it, and, it, and it's this picture of change, okay? It's this picture of change from the inside out. A caterpillar goes into a cocoon, right? And comes out a beautiful butterfly. And that's, that's the story of 2 Corinthians 3.18, and that's the story of the gospel. That's the story of the word of God having an impact on people's lives. Paul knows that every man, woman, and child who has heard and responded to the gospel has realized some measure of that power, powerful change, right? I mean, at the very least, they have been changed from a, a, a child of wrath into an adopted child of the king, right? They have moved, as, as Colossians right, from darkness to light. And, and it's a beautiful thing. And when this change begins at the point of salvation, justification, uh, it begins a long path uh, of change in the Christian's life as the Christian becomes more and more like his Savior as he's being transformed from glory to glory to glory, like 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about. Paul 
takes this moment that we get to here in Colossians chapter two, and he turns his focus from this great Christology of who Jesus Christ is and his sufficiency and his preeminence and the impact that this is having, right? And he turns his focus now on this goal of, of Christ's likeness, this goal of continued progressive sanctification and change. And he, he talks about this in terms of the model of Christ-likeness in our passage today. And I hope you got your Bibles. I hope they're open to, uh, to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 today. And in this, Paul's going to note a couple of things. He's going to notice uh, in verses 1 through 5 the, the inward condition that transpires in a believer. And then in verses 6 and 7, he talks about an outward change that comes. Okay, so he talks about the inside and then he moves it to the outside and details the lifestyle of the Christians. So let's read our passage and, and then we'll get into it. Colossians chapter two, verses one through seven. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument, for even though I'm absent in the body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and also overflowing with gratitude. He begins, and you have this on your outline, talking about the inward change, okay? The internal condition of the Christian. And he talks about the capacity that happens in a new believer, that he has a heart that is secure and a, and a, and a head that is stable. So look at verse one there. He, he begins by saying, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for all those who are at Laodicea, and you'll remember Laodicea is another town in Asia Minor near Colossae, okay? Another church that he's, he's, he has his heart for, he's bursting forth in, pre, in prayer for. He says, I have this great struggle on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and all those who have not personally seen my face. And what I love here when you read this, right, is Paul's intensity. Do you see that? I mean, he is so fired up for these folks he's writing to. Now, let me ask you a question. Has he met these people in Colossae? You should know this by now. We've been talking for a while. Has he? Go ahead. You can talk to me. It's okay. I'm getting bored up here. Talk to me. Come on. Does he? No, he doesn't, right? He, he's never met them, and, but he's intense about them, right? Because why? He cares about them. And I love that intensity. And I think we need more Christians with intensity like that. And what I'm talking about there is not just mere emotional fervor, okay? But I'm talking about an intensity that comes from being single-minded, focused, a direction, a dedication. Christians with zeal like Paul. Paul had a genuine love and concern for the whole church, the great, the universal church. He didn't just have a concern only for those that he knew, that he'd met, that he'd led to the Lord, that he'd discipled, that kind of thing. He had a concern for all of them, those he knew and those he didn't know. That's amazing, isn't it? And even though he'd never met these folks, he struggled on behalf of them. And the intention here is he's struggling in his missionary efforts and in prayer, and he's just fighting the fight there. The word struggle is the Greek word agon, agony, right? We get that from it. It's, it describes intense strain 
and he's having this kind of heart strain for somebody that he's never even met. He agonizes in prayer for them. We see it here in our passage for a purpose. Look at the purpose. He, he starts talking about it in verse 2. He says, here's, here's where this struggle goes. I want their hearts to be encouraged. He says that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from, a full, from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. So he, what he wants for them, he's, he wants every one of them to have the inward reality of a vibrant Christian relationship. He wants them to have a secure heart. Okay, and you see that on your outline. The word encouraged there uh, in verse two, let me read that to you, that their hearts may be encouraged. It, it means, it's a military term, means to come alongside, to strengthen. I, I want their hearts to be strengthened. I want their hearts to be stable. Now he's not just referring to emotions here, okay? When we think about heart in our day and age, in our society, what do we think about? We think about emotions, right? A little pity pat of the heart, you know, Valentine's Day, Cupid, you know, bow and arrow, that kind of stuff, right? Uh, our hearts are all about, oh, I met my wife. Oh, you know, that kind of thing, right? The Bible, when it talks about the heart, really isn't talking about that. If the Bible wanted to talk about that, they would use a whole different word, and that would be the word for bowels. <laughs> How about that one for your Valentine's Day card for your sweetie? Honey, here's my bowels. My bowels are yours. Not too beautiful, right? But we understand that, right? Because when you have strong emotions, where are you affected? Often, you're, where do you get an ulcer? You know, right? You, you're tracking with me on this? Your stomach, your, this is knots. I got butterflies in my stomach. I'm nervous, you see? All the emotions are in that area. So it makes perfect sense what they're talking about and the way they use it. The heart, however, cardia here, or lev in the Old Testament Hebrew, is usually more general. It, retires, it refers to rather the entire uh, inner person, uh, the center of life, as it were. And it often equates to, in scriptures, at least sometimes specifically and always involves the mind. Okay, the mind is part of this. Example would be Psalm uh, 53.1. Fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, you don't say that in your aorta, you know, that kind of thing, right? You're saying, I'm thinking about this, and I don't think there's a God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And place after place, we see that. Uh, emotions are different, right? Emotions respond to what goes on in the mind. And this is really important, okay? Because at the spiritual level, what you want to do is you want to see your thinking changed, right? And then what uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 talks about, right? The renewing of what? Your mind, exactly. You see, as the word of God, uh, illuminated by the spirit of God, courses over your mind and your thoughts begin to change, guess what else changes? Your activities, all the output. The emotions even change, right? We do what we do because we think what we think. That's the bottom line. So if you want to deal with uh, emotions that are out of whack, if you want to deal with practices that are out of whack, where do you got to go first? You got to go back to the base of where you think and what you think of. That's why Paul does what he does here in Colossians. He spends chapter one and two talking theology and then chapters three and four talking about, okay, so what about the theology, right? How does this play out? He begins by setting the foundation as the Colossians are, are being uh, 
come against from, from false teachers with heresies, he starts off not by saying, let me tell you why the Jehovah's Witnesses is wrong. Let me tell you why the Mormons are wrong. All this kind of stuff. What does he do? He goes back to, the, to who Christ is, to the word of God, to truth. And he says, here's the reality. Now let's compare and see if that really fits. And that's the theology he's really doing here in chapter one with the Christology and chapter two, as he starts to apply that uh, uh, theology and practical theology, and then chapters three and four with how it really plays out in their relationships from yourself all the way out to your furthest relationships with people you barely know. So if you want to start, you start the way to control the emotions is through the mind. And when the mind is full of biblical truth, the emotions tend to respond properly. That's why you see many churches today that are struggling because they tend to do things based on how everybody feels, felt needs, things like that, rather than what God's truth is. You see what I'm saying? And when you, when you start with how do I make you feel better and then we'll sneak the truth in later like it's some bad pill, you gotta take it, just a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine, you know, that kind of thing, then you're messed up. And it will rear its ugly head and always does. And it's tough doing it the other way the right way, but it's a lot tougher if you do it the wrong way. So what he, he's, he's getting to here is he's talking about where is your control center? That's why Proverbs 4.23, right? Watch over your heart, your mind with all diligence. Proverbs 23.19, listen to my son, be wise, direct your heart in the way. Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my anxious thoughts then our minds, our hearts can be strengthened, stable, and secure. They can be built up, encouraged, which is what the word means. The strengthened heart is one that is united and unified and filled with love as well. Look at verse two. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. Uh, And this is where people get off track. It becomes all about the theology, right? I just got to know my theology. And they miss the the aspect of, you know, true biblical theology is always united with, what's the L word there? Starts with L, ends with of. Help me out here. What? You guys are good. Right? It's got to be united with that. Not a sentimental reactionary love, but a biblical sacrificial, right? Selfless love. Knowledge in and of itself is valueless if not partnered with a biblical love. I mean, even biblical knowledge is messed up if it's not with love. Track with me on this. Fervent love balances a strong mind, a strong heart. Remember 1 Corinthians 13 verses one through three? (laughs) That kind of slam dunks it, doesn't it? If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, right? I mean, if I am like the most eloquent guy on earth and I'm even using like super spiritual stuff, I mean, I am so far above everybody else that it, you can't even get it, right? If I have that, but do not have love, what am I? My son's memorizing this. What have I become? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, right? Now, cymbal well-placed is okay, right? But how about this? How would you like that? Eight, uh, four in the morning, right? Almost said eight in the morning. Do I sleep that late? Anyway, if I have the gift of prophecy and know, check this out, all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all knowledge. If I, if I have that, but do not have love, I am what? Nothing. 
I mean, if I'm, if I'm super committed, I mean, if I give everything away, if I even deliver my body up as a martyr to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me, what? Nothing. So uh, without love, you, you are nothing, you produce nothing, right? And it profits nothing. Do you think love's kind of important, a biblical kind of love? You bet it is. It's, it's awful clear there. We as Christians should have hearts that are, it says here in our passage, verse two, knit together in love. Knit together in love that is based upon the truth. Colossians 2.19, Ephesians 4.16, use that same word that's translated in the NAS there as knit together to describe the way that a physical body is held together. So, you know, the, the joints and the sinews and the marrow and the bones, all that kind of stuff, that's the kind of knit together truth and love ought to have, just like your body is knit together. And if you think that's not important, just after, here's your homework. After church today, go cut your arm off. Don't do that, children. Right? It's not happy. We should be united. We should be united under the banner of truth with love. And that's why the metaphor, metaphor of the body is so illustrative. If you imagine an ununified body, it's just terrible and ridiculous, right? If you're all during the service, your arm's doing this. While, we're, while I'm up here preaching, that'd be a little distracting to everybody in it, wouldn't it? Try that. Just, no, don't try that. Right? I mean, isn't that what AIDS is? AIDS is the body reacting against itself. AIDS, it's the lack of unity and protection of itself. And it's a devastating illness with a devastating effect on the body. When you have that, it's true in the church as well. Too many churches, church bodies are, are riddled with an AIDS type of condition that they're attacking within and killing the effectiveness without. A church that is attacking itself never reaches out. It just doesn't happen. Christians are by definition to be unified in Christ, under truth, in love. Francis Schaeffer called Christian unity the final apologetic, which meant it was the most definitive rational argument for the truth of scriptures as they see people unified in love in a church body. That's why the enemy seeks to destroy churches, cause divisions, divide Christians, because this unity exhibits Christ to a watching world. I mean, think about the biblical instruction time and time again on this, okay? 1 Corinthians 1.10, let there be no divisions among you. He didn't say, don't let there be many divisions among you. He said, let there be how many? No. No divisions among you. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, be like-minded. That word's interesting because it's like same truth. Be like-minded, live in peace. And this isn't the idea, again, of just warm fuzzies, you know, like we're holding, we're gonna pretend, right? We're gonna put a big plaster smile on our face. Let's hold hands and skip through the park. We're in love. We're a great church. No, no, that's not what it's talking about at all. It's talking about a real, true, deep, abiding love and genuine concern for one another where you do things like Philippians 2, where you esteem one another is more important than yourself. Think about that one for a little bit. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 says this, and so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, check it out, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, right? Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And then he says this, 
and beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Division comes when we love ourselves more than others and more than Christ. That's when divisions come. Somebody somewhere along the line is in that boat. A secure, strong heart, unified to the body in love, results in a stable head, okay? Look at verse 2 again. Their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. The NIV puts the middle part of the verse like this. It says, so they may have the full riches of complete understanding. I kind of like that. The Bible uses various Greek terms that are translated understanding in our English Bibles. The one that's used here is describing the ability to apply biblical truth to everyday life situations. That's kind of the word it is. Taking biblical truth from the head and to the feet and the hands and the heart. It's uh, sunesis, it's a running together, it's partnered. You see that? An understanding. I not only know it here, but it's playing out in my life. My life and my theology is running together. Understanding gives, as our verse says there, assurance. Um, it, it chases out doubt. The kind of understanding that is playing out practically in your life, biblical truth partnered with obedience to that truth, gives assurance. Scriptures constantly say that. Uh, we try to give assurance a lot of different ways in our generation uh, by having people write notes in the back of their Bible or something like that. And, uh, the, but the main thing really is to come to the Word of God and what you find there by the Spirit of God and by His grace, have that applied in your life, and you'll have assurance. That's really the bottom line. The primary problem with those who doubt their salvation is usually not a lack of knowledge or information, but rather a failure to apply the truths that they already know. Most people have the greatest doubts when they're not walking in accordance with God's word. Why can't I live right? I mean, am, am I really a Christian? Because I'm struggling here. And I need to better understand, what is, how's my life supposed to play out under the grace of God in a, in a, in a theology, in a, in a time of, in a, in a part of my salvation from predestination to, to glorification, where I'm at in it right now, there's not a, uh, I'm not arrived. I'm not at glorification yet. So how does that, how does this play out? How do, how do I fight the good fight? How do I finish the course but, and not get discouraged by the fact that I fail? How can I understand that it's by God's grace that I can see that I'm a sinner and by God's grace I can improve in that area, although not to perfection until glorification, you see? And that's part of the theology that you're trying to understand. Uh, Satan likes the fact that when we get closer to God, we uh, start to be concerned about our sin because then he can pull in and cause doubt, right? And so that's why, that's where cults come from, quite honestly, right? You think about it, a cult typically has a list of things that, that you're supposed to do. And if you do these things, guess what? You're in. How cool is that? You're in. And so if you can say, well, if I have to show up every Sunday or Saturday or whatever it is, if I have to do this or I have to do that, I can really grit my teeth and push through those things. And I don't really have to worry about the fact that my heart doesn't long for the Lord. Or that I'm not really serious about having a relationship, intimate, deep, personal relationship with him, you see? So cults are very, very attractive that way because people want to have relief from that. Don't go there. A secure heart leads to a stable head, one that results in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. Paul says, understanding applied knowledge brings us to a true understanding of Christ, who here Paul <laughs> refers to as God's mystery. 
Now, we talked a little bit about mystery last time, and I won't go through that all again. But by way of, by way of review, I want you to remember that a mystery, scripturally speaking, is not a, not a uh, Sherlock Holmes or Dr. Watson kind of thing, you know, where it's like, well, we got to figure it out. It's hidden from us, and we got to figure it out. It's not that, but it's a revealed secret. It was a truth that was formerly not known, but now has been revealed by God, a gracious God who wants you to know and see it. And here, the, the secret revealed is Jesus Christ himself. Now, you can go back to Genesis 3 and see this one who's coming, right? The seed who's going to crush Satan's head. And, and through the Old Testament, we see that further and further defined. But until uh, Christ is born, and until he's crucified, until he's exalted, people aren't getting it, right? And the full story's not there. Now we have Christ revealed in fullness. And you know what? He's coming back for further revelation and fullness later. How cool is that going to be? Wouldn't it be cool, just a little side note, wouldn't it be cool if right now that happened? Right, I mean right now. How awesome would that be? You don't have to sit through the rest of the sermon. You get it straight from the, you know, you get it without all me, you know, right? Messing everything up. How awesome would that be? Have you thought about it like that? Did you think about this week? Maybe Christ would come this week. Maybe we can be pulled out of here. Christ come. Wouldn't that be awesome? We serve a great God. He's, in fact, this Christ who has been revealed, verse 3 tells us that in him, check it out, look at verse 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the sum total. For the believer, it's not a mystery, some kind of hide-and-seek thing that we, we finally have to find it out and get the secret thing that nobody else knows. We have Christ, and he's revealed, and God's gone to great trouble to have him revealed to us through the incarnation first, through the word of God preserved for us now, through the spirit who indwells and, and convicts and does all that ministry, right? And in him are hidden, check this out, in verse 3, you ought to circle this word in your Bible, all. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, the idea, as we've seen through the book of Colossians so far, is this idea of completeness, right? Sufficiency. In Christ, that's all you need. So when the false teachers come, the heretics come, what Paul's building up to here is you don't need anything added to Christ. And that's what chapter 2 is really going to be about. You don't need to add mysticism. We do that today. You don't need to add legalism. We do that today. You don't need to add asceticism. That is a bunch of rules of things you can't do. We have that today. You don't have to do all that kind of stuff because Christ is all, and in him, all the wisdom and knowledge is there. We have everything we need in Christ. We don't need the Book of Mormon. It isn't Christ plus something. We don't need Christ plus Joseph Smith or Muhammad or psychology or science or the Pope or works or men's philosophy or legalism, mysticism, asceticism, any of that kind of stuff, any ism you want. What we need is Christ. What the world need is Christ. That would have been a great place for an amen. Let's try that again. We'll edit out the other part. Look at verse four. Paul, he says, I write this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive arguments. Remember, he's fighting a heresy here. He knows that strong minds, strong unity, and strong assurance of Christ's sufficiency combats error. So that nobody can persuade you with really slick words. Nobody's able to delude you. And Paul says, verse 5, For either, even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. He says, and he's encouraging them here, right here, isn't he? I see it already. 
he says. I hear about it. You're doing great. Up till now, great, keep it up. Keep, keep striving, keep struggling for the sake of Jesus Christ's gospel. He says, Epaphras brought me a good report of you. I'm rejoicing, but don't let the false teachers deceive you. Stay close to the truth. Stay close to the unity of the body and love. Stay close to all-sufficient Christ. He uses two military terms here, which describe the solidarity of the military formation there. He's, when he's talking about what he rejoices and what he sees there, he says the first one, there is good discipline. That refers to a soldier standing in line for a battle. And the other one is the word stability. And that's just the firmness of that and the resolve. And taken together, you have the Colossians standing firm in a battle ray against these heresies. Paul says, your position is good and I'm praying that you, for you to be continually strengthened, shored up with a secure heart and a stable head and that your internal condition would excel still more. But Paul doesn't leave it there. This is point number two in your outline. He then talks about the outward consequences, the outward condition of, of us as a result of what's going on. And in verse six, he, he states their charge clearly. Look at it. He says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. I mean, the same way you received him, continue. And walk. Walk is just a metaphor used often in scriptures for life. So as you're walking through life, as you're going through life, live like he saved you and live in Christ. As you have received, he said, that's an aorist in the Greek. That means it's a point action and past time. It's done. It's secure. It's accomplished. You received. That's a done deal. It's not going to change. Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, I love the fact that he says, you received Jesus. He didn't say that. He did, you received Christ. He didn't say that. Or you received your Savior. He didn't say that. He didn't say you received your Lord. He says, Christ Jesus the Lord. And he just binds all these titles for Christ up and puts them in a package and throws them out there in such a way that it talks about his deity. It talks about his humanity. It talks about his sufficiency. And it talks about his lordship. By the way, so much of our emphasis is on Christ Jesus as Savior. And he is. Amen. But we run away, or we tend to run away from Christ as Lord. Because what that means, is it means I need to submit to him as the sovereign in my life and to his design. And it means doing things differently than what I may want to do in any given situation. I remember when I was in seminary and I was looking for a job out here in, in Southern California. And a guy from my church said, hey, we're looking for a guy. I went over and interviewed and it was all great and everything. And so they, they hired me. So they told me I had the job. And quite honestly, for Southern California, the money wasn't enough to really kind of make feed people I had to feed and live and all that kind of stuff. But I knew God would provide, and it seemed like this was the thing he had for me. I'm driving home from accepting the job. And I get a call from an elder in my church who says, David, I love the fact that you have a degree in architecture. I love the fact that you have a degree in construction management. And he had a, a firm that was a consulting firm for all those things. And he said, I'd love to have you come on board with me and I'll pay you. And he threw out a number, which was twice what I was being paid from the other place. I didn't tell my wife the story till later. But anyway, my flesh immediately said, well, I'm taking that. That's a lot easier. And isn't, here's, here's how it works. Isn't God good how he just provided that for me, right? Oh, I must have gotten in the way. He stood in his way over here. 
But I thought about it and I prayed about it. And I said, you know, the Bible says my yes needs to be yes, my no, no. And I told this guy, and the guy who hired me, by the way, was an agnostic, who, a great opportunity to, to show Christ to him and to be around him and all that kind of stuff. And he wasn't the guy from church that <laughs> had me come. It's a different guy that hired me. And uh, I said, I need to do that. I need to, I need to let my yes be yes. That's what, that's what scriptures say. My flesh, my mind, uh, from a fleshly perspective, says do it some way differently. So I told the guy that, and he said, okay, sorry to hear that. By the way, could you do some consulting on the side for me for so much money an hour? And by the way, that would fill out what I needed. I said, well, I'll check with my company and see if that's okay with their policy, and then I'll let you know. And they said it was okay, so I did it. And God provided anyway, didn't he? In fact, within three months of that time, he gets an offer on his business, sells it to a firm in Santa Monica, which is a lot further away from the seminary and would have been very hard for me to go to. And the company I was with promoted me up to a whole different job that doubled my salary. How cool is that? Isn't God good? Isn't he sweet? I mean, by the way, isn't he sweet if your salary is halved? I didn't get near as many nodding heads on that one. (laughs) I understand. Maybe I didn't nod on that one either. But he is, right? See, by definition, Christians, we're, we're to submit to his lordship. And that's a foreign concept to many in the church today, even an offensive thought. But as Spurgeon said, and as scriptures bear out, this is the way it was taught, right? This is what the apostles talked about. He says in the book of Acts, the word savior, you know how many times it's used in in the book of Acts? Two times. That's Roman numerals, two times. Actually, this would be Roman numerals. Lord, 106 times. Hey, by the way, if savior was used once, would that be enough? Yeah. Yeah. But do you think that God's maybe trying to emphasize something to us that we need to understand that there's an aspect to this that's not as natural to us as being saved, (laughs) being rescued? The New Testament Savior, 24 times. New Testament Lord, 668 times. Paul says, as you have received Jesus Christ as Lord, which is the only acceptable way to receive him, by the way, Romans chapter 2 and verse 9 says. So what now? Now walk in that. Submit to him. Follow him. Keep on, literally is what it says there in the tense. Keep on walking in him. Don't change horses midstream. Continue on. Now look at verse 7. This is so cool. And here what Paul does is he clarifies the basis of the Christian walk with a series of participles. He says, verse 6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus as the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. I love this because he just takes this series of participles here, some things that are God's responsibility and some things that are man's responsibility, and he lays them out. Check it out. It's on your outline. The first thing you'll notice there, he says, having been firmly rooted, that's, what God, that's God's business, right? God plants. Okay, that's on your outline. That, that verb, that participle there is in what's called the perfect tense. And what that means is it's something that happened in the past that has continuing results going on. Beautiful, okay? I hope you're getting this, all right? It's something that happened in the past. It's a once-for-all experience, but it's having continued results. God plants, and it continues. It's kind of like if you were to go down to the bank and open up a CD and put in, you know, $1,000 into a CD, right? You've made, there's been a one-time deposit, and then there's continuing effects of that as interest is earned. You see? And it's kind of that understanding. Uh, he, he says, you have been firmly Securely rooted. I love that. 
when I moved to Kansas, when I got out of seminary, <laughs> we moved into the parsonage. In the front yard, they have a flagpole, and there was a, a yucca plant in front of that flagpole. Now, I know a lot of people in California have yucca plants, but they're named yucca for a reason, okay? I think they're ugly, so I'm thinking, let's get rid of this thing. So I go out there, and being a guy with no tools, all right, no skills, I go out there with what I have on hand and start trying to tear this thing out. I get a shovel, start digging around it. There's a root going down in this thing that's just massive, all right? So I hack it with a little hatchet I had and pull it, up, pull it out of there, and I've got kind of this indention in the yard now. It's really pretty. It's much prettier than a yucca plant. And, and we, sit, we sit back, oh, good to, be, good to be rid of that. Guess what happens? It's no time, and all of a sudden, out of the sprouts, guess who? Mr. Yucca. Mr. Yucca came out of the ground again. Ooh, I didn't get the whole thing. All right, so I'm getting down there again. The hatchet's getting thicker, and my hatchet's not able to do it. I get a circular saw out, right tool, right job, right? And I saw this thing out. I try and try, and every year the same thing happens. The yucca plant comes back. Why? Because a yucca plant, I did not know this, has an amazing root system. It has a fibrous root system that can spread out as much as 35 feet in one direction from it. It's not a very deep system, but it goes all the way out. And it has what's called a taproot that can go down, check this out, 20 feet into the ground. So old David up there with his hatchet and circular saw, and if I'd had backhoes or anything else, I couldn't have got down 20 feet to get rid of this thing, right? Because why? It's firmly rooted. I love that because that's a picture of what God has done in our life, right? And it's passive voice here. We have been firmly rooted, right? Only our root is better than the yuck. It goes down a lot further than 20 feet and wider than uh, 35 feet. We, are, we have our root in Christ. True? Uh, spiritual root is a source of our spiritual nourishment. And God planted us and he rooted us firmly. It's not, God, not us doing it, but God's doing it. Passive voice. Verse 7 continues, letter B. Not only does God plant... But God feeds. He says, and you're now being built up in him. He rooted you, and now he's building you up. That one's present tense, which means it's continual, okay? You're continually being built up, and it's passive again. So it's God, not us, doing. you are being built up. So God plans, plants us, gives us our root, and then he builds us. Is this good so far? Are you thrilled it's not you? I'm pretty thrilled about that at this point, right? Number three, letter C, God shelters. God planted, God feeds, God shelters. He now you're being established in your faith just as you were instructed. Again, present tense, continually, regularly establishing, confirming us, securing us in our faith. And again, passive, it's God doing it, not us. Established in your faith, check it out, just as you were instructed. In other words, going, he's pushing back to truth, just as the original truth. Don't lose the simplicity of the gospel. Don't, don't stray after false teaching. Just as you have been instructed, don't listen to these false guys coming in. Remember the truth that you were taught from the beginning and go forward that way. And finally, letter D, the only participle with an active voice, which means we're doing it, is man praises. That's your blank, praises. It says, and we're overflowing with gratitude. Check that out. It's the only active voice participle. God plants, God builds up, God shelters, and the natural spiritual response of a secured heart, unified in love for the brethren, with a strong mind assured of a person's position in Christ, is to walk in a way that the Christ who saved him walk and overflow with praise and thanksgiving. Again, we're back to a theme that we've talked about before with thanksgiving, right? 
That's the, that's the worship. Worship is not a style of music. Worship is not anything but, it's again, Romans 12, 1 and 2, you're, you're on the altar. Here I am. A living sacrifice, not dead sacrifice. And I want to overflow with gratitude by being in that position, continuing to walk, as he said earlier in our passage, just as in the same way I was saved. It's amazing to me how many of us who are Christians and have been saved by the, solely by the grace of God then try to be, maintain our Christianity solely by our own works. In other words, he did it, he saved me, and now I've got to figure out how to keep me there. Just as, you were, just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Continue on that path in grace. Well, well, that sounds like licentiousness. No, it doesn't. It sounds exactly the opposite. Walking in the way that I received him. When I received him, I came before him, a beggar humbled before a king, reaching out with nothing to offer, right? And as I live my life, I live in that same boat. Tell me what, what it's, it's, you know, Acts chapter two, after the, you, this Jesus whom you crucified, right? And their response was, what should we do? It was Saul on the road to Damascus. What do I do now, Lord? And it's us. We've been saved by his grace. What do we do now? We follow him by his grace. He empowers us to walk the walk. He gives us his word, which he's preserved for us. He illuminates that word by the spirit who indwells us that he's given us. He's given us, given us, given us. That's what grace means, right? And it's, we continue on that path the same way. The grace of the word of God, the grace of illumination, the grace of a transformed life that empowers me to respond to his truth in a gracious way. And as I ponder the fact that I have not contributed to this in any way, shape, or form, it's not my faith, by the way. The faith was a, a, a grace given to me as well. It's not my repentance because he gave me that as well. It's not my power because his spirit indwelling me is what does that. I, in my flesh, I want it to be about me. Look what I did. But the reality is, look what he did. And as we understand that, truly understand that, there's only one response that's right. That's what you see here. Overflowing with gratitude. The only active voice participle in the bunch. 1 John 2, 6 puts it this way. The one who says he abides in him, in Christ, ought himself to walk in the same manner that he walked. That's pretty clear. There's a story one pastor told about, uh, he was out here speaking in Southern California, I guess in the Pasadena area, because he went to see a rose garden up in Pasadena. Beautiful roses that are all in that climate right around there. He went and he walked, spent the afternoon walking through, just marveling all the different varieties, little ones, big ones, you know, just beautiful, permeating the fragrance in the air and all that kind of stuff. He went back to where he was staying and his wife was there and she says, were you at a rose garden today? Well, yeah, how'd you know that? Let me smell it on you. You see, that's, that's a beautiful illustration, I think, of us as Christians, that we are basking in his presence, overflowing with our joy of who he is, taking advantage of the means of grace that he's laid out to us over and over again, right? 
and we're spending time in his presence and his word and prayer and communication with the saints. And you can't help but when you're around us, out in the real world, right? Knowing there's something different. Smelling, as it were, the fragrance of Christ on us. So here's my question. As you receive Christ, so walk in him. How's your walk? Do you see Christ? Are you having an intensity like, like old Paul's showing us here? Is there a zeal about your life, about the things of God? I mean, do you want to know him more? Do you want to uh, understand him better? Do you want to carry out his calling in your life more and more? Do you want to exercise your spiritual gifts? Do you want to tell others about Jesus Christ? Do you want to pour your life into others so they may be discipled followers of Jesus Christ? Because that's our calling according to the pages of scripture, Right? That's what we're to be about. That's why we weren't just saved and yanked out of here at, at justification, right? He left us here so that we could be his ambassadors, so that we could carry his message so that a lost and dying world might see light. My prayer is for you is the same that I have for my own life. I pray for my own life that I might walk as closely with the Lord that the fragrance of his grace will pervade my being. You know what I mean? That people will get that. I want them to know by, my, my, by the outflow of my life, by my words, by my actions, by my priorities, that I've been with Jesus. And that's my prayer for you too. And you know what? If I could just be a little Pauline for you for a second, I see it. I see it. Be encouraged. It's a sweet fellowship. A lot of folks here who love the Lord and I see and smell the fragrance of Christ on you. Continue. Strong heart, rooted in the word of God. United with a love that is only from Christ. Selfless, sacrificial, right? And carrying out a message until the shout. Oh, man. Save us a lot of effort if the shout would come now. But you know what? I finished the sermon. And I guess that means, at least for now, we're going to at least make it to, you know, Sunday school in the cars and different things like that. Maybe back to work for another week into our neighborhoods where there are people who need to know about Jesus Christ. There are family members who need to be shown Christ. There are so many opportunities for the gospel. As God changes us and we're changing from that caterpillar to the butterfly and becoming more and more Christ-like and having an impact on the world and seeing that change continue by God's grace in other lives that are no more deserving than us equally deserving as us let's pray Father we thank you for this time together this morning we do thank you for your word and your truth and um, we thank you that it judges our hearts and it shows us our weaknesses and it rebukes us and it reproves us, but it also corrects us. It also shows us the right way and trains us in righteousness so that we as men and women of God can be adequate, complete for every good work. So Father, my prayer is that uh, uh, we would go forth and, and, and redeem the day that you've given us for your glory out of gratitude for what you've done. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.